Mind Blown, Part 7. They tell me my name is Tim Warner. They tell me I'm 23. They tell me I volunteered to be here. I'm recording all of this to keep records because lately I've been having a hard time keeping straight what's real and what's... not. I'm recording this on an old school analog to... Wait. This isn't right. My name is Chris Taylor. I was born in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but my family moved outside of Omaha when I was seven. I grew up as a member of the 3CA, the Constitutional Christian Church of America, which is a militantly devout and patriotic Protestant sect formed in 1998. I was not, as some have suggested, indoctrinated into the church as a child. I very much believe in our ministry's vision and our promise to save the parts of this once great country that can still be saved. My brother Luke, who grew up with the same parents and environment as me, chose of his own volition not to be involved with the 3CA and... While our parents were disappointed, they never pressured him to become involved, nor do I believe they would have pressured me had I not willfully made the church's mission my life work. I'm a graduate of the University of Truth, Light, and Hope, which is an institution of higher learning in Marshalltown, Iowa, administrated and funded by the church. I majored in political science and media arts, and my ultimate goal is to help nurture and elect political candidates that can further the church's agenda. A lot of people have already suggested that I should run for office someday, but to be honest, I kind of like the idea of working behind the scenes to shape the world into a better place. My calling is entirely untethered from the desire for fame or wealth. I know how I can make the world a better place. I've got a roadmap, a plan, a plan that'll alter the political system to protect and favor people who believe what I believe. I'm not talking about doing anything illegal or even unethical. We're just a motivated voting and spending block who believe that this is a Christian nation and that we don't need to return to our roots, we need to redefine the very idea of America. A reboot, if you will. Look, the founding fathers were wrong about a lot of things. Many of them were slave owners, which honestly is disqualifying from the jump, but that's another story. The fact is a better America can exist, but it's gonna take an organized, concerted effort that's gonna span generations, and that's where we come in. I met Pastor Dan at a charity chili cook-off when I was 12. He was head counselor at a sleepaway camp I attended. And before you think pastor and a boy, oh, this can't end well, I assure you that Dan was never in any way inappropriate. He was a high-quality adult mentor who helped me believe in myself, in our calling, in America, in the future. <laughs> How many people these days believe in the future anymore? Dan and I used to have long conversations where he would explain to me the stakes of the mission we had taken on. He was honest. He told me straight up that it wasn't likely our plan would come to fruition in my lifetime, but was all but assured that it would happen during my children's. So I was doing all this for my children. That's the best reason to do anything ever. I mean, everyone agrees on that. I met Ruth when I was 14. We met at a church mixer at Six Flags in St. Louis. She lived up in Kansas City, but her family has moved to Omaha to be closer to the epicenter of our movement. Her parents were both high-ranking members of the organization and wanted to be closer to headquarters. They finally arrived about 14 months later. She started at my school in 10th grade. I took her to the homecoming game and the dance, and we started being a couple right after that. I don't know that Ruth and I were ever in love or even particularly liked each other. We both felt like we had a mission in life and that our eventual union would further aid that mission. We'd marry, we'd have a bunch of kids, raise them to be warriors like us, and, like Dan said, in their lifetimes it's possible they would see the fruition of all our righteous work. She was majoring in education with a minor in Spanish. While I had plans to infiltrate politics on behalf of our church, she, like many others, was going directly to the impressionable young minds that could be shaped by the right message at the right age. 
The plan was to work both within the public school system and help young mothers set up homeschooling plans where they could educate their children without the danger of them being indoctrinated by the unfaithful. Pastor Dan became the leader of the CCCA when Bishop Isaac King passed away at the age of 87. The vast majority of us had only ever known the church under Bishop's King leadership, and there was some controversy over who should take his place. Dan enlisted me and some of my poli-sci friends to orchestrate a campaign to convince our fellow followers that he was the man for the job. Now, this wasn't a huge challenge. Dan's main opposition was Carlo Oliveira, an incredibly charismatic pastor out of Montana who has some fairly moderate views about our church's place in society. Frankly, moderation has no place in the CCCA. Like I said before, we're warriors. Our mission is to reshape this country into God's image and keep it that way. Some of my cohort try to couch our goals in language they think will be more palatable to the less devoted. They'll say they just want to spread the word of the Lord and help souls find salvation like any other Christian organization. I don't bother trying to candy coat it. We want nothing less than the complete transformation of America into our vision. And there is no rule or norm or law that we will let stand in our way. If we need to do something the law stands in our way, we'll change the law. If somebody stands in our way, well, they won't stand long. We want nothing less than to save this nation from itself, and we will do it by any means necessary. That's not something we're going to do by pretending otherwise. Oliviera wanted to pretend. Anyway, the long and short of his Oliviera never stood a chance, and Dan became the leader of the church. He was a good leader, too. He wasn't in it to enrich himself or get high on power. He was a true believer in a mission, and as such, he dedicated 100% of his life to it. As thanks for me helping him win, which... Honestly, he could have done without my help. He made me his right-hand man at the ripe old age of 20. It was a mutually beneficial relationship. He knew I was a ruthless, devoted, true believer in the cause, and I knew that he had access to people and resources I could put to good use. I liked the power and authority my relationship with Dan gave me. Did I abuse it, as some people claimed? <laughs> Maybe. I was young and cocky, and I wanted to set a precedent for being aggressive and uncompromising. I wanted to rise up the ranks of the church. I wanted power and influence. I'm not apologizing for that. I was so obsessed with my calling, it caused a rift between my brother Luke and I. I mean, he was still a good God-worshipping Christian, but he didn't have the stomach for our mission. He was fine with the status quo, and frankly, I cannot understand how anyone who considers themselves a person of faith can believe the status quo is worth preserving. It needs to be burned to ash and a new status quo erected in its place. But Luke wasn't interested. All he cared about was his job, his girlfriend, his golf buddies, and college football. I tried to convince him to see the light, but he told me I'd been brainwashed by Mom and Pastor Dan. He pretty much stopped talking after around my 21st birthday. My dad also worked for the church. He traveled a lot and was rarely home. He worked in recruitment and spent his time trying to find converts and donors. He was also on a real estate task force that was supposed to find land to buy up, but as I understood it from Dan and others, he was a bit of a bust at that. I honestly don't think he was all that passionate about the church. I think he saw this as a job that paid fairly well for a man with his lack of skills and education. He did fine, though. He came close to meeting most of his quotas. A couple times he even exceeded him. I don't think he minded being on the road so much anyway. He and my mother were not exactly close. I don't think I ever saw them display any affection towards each other. So I guess it's no surprise that Ruth and I were basically going through the motions of being a couple, too. As devout Christians, we were saving ourselves for marriage, and that was just fine with both of us. I don't think we shared any emotional intimacy either. She was beautiful, but for whatever reason, I never found myself terribly attracted to her. But we were together for almost six years. 
We both had goals and we thought the other person could help us achieve them, so we went through the motions. At one point, I truly believe she loved me. She said as much one day when we were picnicking on her uncle's farm out near Great Bend. I don't think that lasted long. Ruth knew that my true passion was the mission, and she knew that meant I'd never be able to dedicate myself fully to anyone. As time went on, our relationship became less college boyfriend-girlfriend and more like two co-workers sharing the same space. I don't think I noticed at the time. I was too focused on the work. But she definitely started drifting away from me in the church around junior year. The summer before senior year, she told me that not only was she leaving me, she was leaving the CCCA organization entirely. Ruth told me she no longer believed in the mission. She felt she'd been pressured to join as a kid and that her loyalty had never been absolute. She also told me that she thought my fanaticism was a product of a life of brainwashing and indoctrination that verged on mental abuse from my mother and Pastor Dan. I hadn't seen any of this coming, and I'm sure that's on me as these things so frequently are, but I did not react well. In the heat of the moment, I said some things I deeply regret. I did not strike or hit her, but I did cross a line of physicality that I am to this day frightened and ashamed of. I shook her violently. I threw her up against the wall, and I, I don't remember much of it. I, I was in an actual blind rage. I know no one who doesn't know me has any reason to believe this, but it was the first and only time I've ever become violent against another person, female or male. Look, I'm not a fighter. I'm not a tough guy. I can be resolute and I can be intimidating when I need to be, but I'm not the kind of person who throws a 100-pound woman into a wall. Well, I guess I am. But I didn't think I was. And until that moment, I wasn't. I have not and I will not forgive myself for that outburst of unchecked rage and aggression, nor do I expect Ruth to. I reacted poorly, my partner of several years telling me they no longer believed in my life's work, that they no longer believed in me. I'm sorry. Ruth said she never wanted to speak to me again, and I understood. But I was enraged, and I needed to vent that frustration. I don't drink or do drugs, so I got in my car and I drove. I probably shouldn't have driven in my mental state, but I did, and I started crying. I don't think I'd cried since I was in preschool, but the tears came and I couldn't stop them. It was night, and it had started to rain. I couldn't see or think straight. And I hit a young man who was walking by the side of the road over an overpass. I lost control and my car jumped the railing and tumbled to the highway 20 feet below. I survived, but I was in a coma. My existence felt like an endless dream. I was unconscious, but I drifted in and out of periods where I could hear and process what was going on around me. I heard my mother pray hundreds of times for my recovery. I heard Luke, who was presumably alone, tell me he'd never forgive me for what I'd done to Ruth and to the guy I'd hit with my car that this was all part of God's punishment. But mostly I heard Dan. Dan was in my hospital room a lot, talking to someone called Dr. Price. Price had come from a secret research institute that had financial ties to the church. Turns out we, unbeknownst to me, were heavily funding a series of high-tech experiments to connect the human brain to computers. I knew nothing about this initiative, and from what I heard it sounded well beyond our financial abilities as I understood them. But Dan mentioned silent partners of the church who had very deep pockets and would be very interested in funding the work. He referred to them as the Valiant Consortium, a term I had heard a couple of times around the church offices but never fully understood. To hear Dan talk about it while I was unconscious, it sounded like it was a shadow group of global investors who shared our vision but, for political or cultural reasons, didn't want to be openly associated with us yet, which I understand. 
But you know, looking back, in all my years with the church, none of us had ever been asked to do any fundraising for the organization, and there was never any discussion of a shortage of money or resources. The existence of the Valiant Consortium, whoever they were, explained how we were always so flush with cash. Price told Dan that they believed that they were close to accomplishing the goal that Valiant had tasked them with, perfecting a technology that would allow them to store human consciousness digitally and preserve it eternally. Everlasting life. The ultimate promise of every religion. Price made it clear that they had reached the human trial phase and suggested he allow them to upload my consciousness so that if anything happened to my corporeal body, I could be preserved. He even hinted that he believed I could be downloaded into another body should the situation call for it. Dan convinced my mother to sign off on the experiment. Time was of the essence as there was no telling how long I would survive. I was taken somewhere, I don't know where, but I know travel was involved based on the sounds I heard. I didn't hear much after that. I believe I was heavily sedated going into the procedure. I have only flashes of audio from my time at the Institute, and they don't add up to anything concrete. Next thing I remember, I was floating in a void. Nothingness. I couldn't process space or time. With nothing to orient myself against, each moment stretched into years before snapping back into itself. Physics didn't apply, and I didn't have a body to be affected by motion, yet I had a sickening sense of falling in every direction at once. It was hell. Was this what Valiant had in mind? Did they intentionally want to develop this technology to torture people for eternity? Or did they simply not realize how inhumane it was? All I could do for what seemed like an impossible amount of time was think. All that thinking, all that solitude, all that nothing started to tear me apart. I could feel it happening. Whatever I was, inside that machine, was going very, very mad. Without the constraints of time, I was nothing but a series of recursive thoughts and memories. And the two memories that replayed themselves the most often were me choking Ruth and the face of the man I hit with my car. And then one day, without warning, I was out. I opened my eyes and I was in a lab. Four scientists in white lab coats surrounded me. I felt an enormous sense of relief. They'd pulled me out of that hell and I was back in the waking world and the whole thing had worked just like they wanted it to. I tried to talk. I tried to tell them about the torturous abyss they had just pulled me out of, but I couldn't make words come out of my mouth. My throat was parched. My tongue felt like an alien creature in my mouth far outside of my control. I guess I was flailing around or something because someone told someone else to shoot me with a sedative. It worked instantly and I gave up trying to speak. I was being wheeled into an ICU for further observation when we passed a wall mirror and I saw, to my horror, that I was not me. I was the man I had hit with my car. His eyes reflected back at me as wide and horrified as they were on the day I'd struck him. And then everything went black. When I came to, if you can call it that, it took me quite some time to figure out where I was. It was a void, but not like the one I'd been trapped in before. Time and space had meaning, thankfully, although they were confusing. Eventually, I realized that I was still in the other man's body, but I wasn't in control. I was riding along like a passenger while he lived his life in the Institute. I heard him talk to Price, who told him his name was Tim and that he had amnesia. Tim told him he didn't think he'd volunteered to be here. Every few days, Tim would list off what he believed were his last remaining memories, six of which were actually mine. The only one that was his own was the headlights of my car coming to end his life as he knew it. He even remembered that time Ruth said she loved me. I was glad it was that, not me throwing her against that wall. I don't know how my memories seeped into his brain, or why those memories. I don't know what happened to his memories. 
sometimes I'm lucid and I'm aware of everything that he's doing and experiences, but there are long stretches I can't account for where I guess I'm just sort of asleep. There's no void, no dreams, no thoughts or outside stimulus. I'll just realize days have passed for Tim that I have no recollection of. Then I heard Tim say he was going to try to get rid of me by forgetting my memories. That moment something happened. I felt the will inside of me rise to such a level that just for a moment I was able to control him, to speak, to warn him that he would not erase me. The effort took everything out of me and I estimated wiping me out for weeks following. By the time I was fully lucid again, Tim was behind the wheel of my brother's car talking to Ruth on my old phone. The situation was far too chaotic for me to make any sense of and before I could collect my bearings, I realized we weren't in Tim's body. We were in mine. And then a moment later, he had a semi-truck. Tim had hijacked my body and killed me. Somehow he and I had both occupied it together and then he returned his body without any connection through the Valiant Network. Now it seems that the trauma of the experience has put me in control of Tim's body. I don't know where he is or how long this will last. I can almost hear him somewhere in the distance begging to be forgiven, begging to be allowed to control his body again. But I won't let him. I'm going to go speak to Price. I'm going to demand he contact Pastor Dan. I'll insist they let me out of here. Back to my old life. Back to my mission. They'll comply. They know who's paying the bills. I got a life to get back to. A divine plan to carry out. I have a country's soul to save. I gotta get back to work. <laughs>